2: Hey everybody, welcome back to another week of Women To Watch Here on WWDB Talk 860 My name is Sue Rocco and I'm thrilled to be here every week with some wonderful women in the Philadelphia area and across the country as well who are doing some wonderful things and are happy to come in and share their stories with us. Uh, I'm thrilled today to have um, someone in the studio who truly has a very inspirational story to share with us. And her name is Nikki Johnson Houston. And Nikki is an attorney and owner of the law office of Nikki Johnson Houston. Welcome to the studio, Nikki. Thank you for having me. Um, I'd love to get right into um, your story, your background, and um, some of the things that you went through as a young girl, which truly is the story about why you are where you are today and the owner of this uh, law practice. Um, For our listeners, um, Nikki was uh, born in Detroit. And um, was there for a short time, um, born to a single mother, and then moved to California. And um, talk a little bit about those years and and what happened uh, back then.
1: Thank you. Um, My mother, I I think I sort of have the stereotypical inner city life, unfortunately. Um, My mother was a single mother. Uh, My grandmother sort of was the glue that held us together. And when I was about seven years old, we moved to California because my grandmother who had worked for most of her life as a domestic had been disabled in an accident and because of health issues and because of a lot of difficulties with my mother. um, Two of my uncles had been murdered on the streets of Detroit and she was really afraid for our safety and she was hoping that by moving our family to California that that might give us a fresh start and that maybe we would be able to leave my mother's Um, drug problem and alcohol abuse behind us. But unfortunately, um, those issues came with us. And within a couple of years of us going to, coming to California, my mother had moved us away from my grandmother, my brother and myself um, to San Diego. And within a few weeks, we had been living in a hotel. Someone that she had met had taken all of our money And so we went from living in a hotel, to living in a motel, to people being kind enough to let us stay in a spare room, to sleeping on a couch, to sleeping on a floor, to letting us borrow a car, until we just literally ran out of places to stay. And that's when we ended up homeless on the streets. And I like to say that the movie, The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith is a very accurate portrayal of what it's like to be homeless on the streets um, with your children. We would have to stand in line for a shelter. There wasn't very many shelters that would cater to women and children. And, you know, if you were lucky enough, you'd get a place to stay for the night. And if not, then, you know, you had to sort of fend for yourself. And the nights that we couldn't find a place to stay, my mom would find a park bench and she would put me on one knee and my brother on another. And she would try to keep her eyes open all night so that we could be safe. And, you know, we literally were on the street. There would be times that, you know, we'd find a place to stay or get enough money to get a motel room. But, you know, this went on off and on for almost a year. And, you know, we would go to the soup kitchen to get our meals. And for me, one of the things that was sort of stability in that time was during the day, you couldn't stay in the shelter. And so my mother would take us to the library. And for me, I fell in love with books and reading, and it very much was an escape for me because I could read, I loved reading memoirs and biographies and about art and travel, and it really sort of grounded me in a way because it allowed me to read about people who'd gone through worse situations than I was going through, and I guess it gave me hope that maybe my life could be something different than that, something better than that. Um, after several months, my mom made what I call a very selfless decision, and it probably saved our lives, which was she just realized she couldn't keep us together as a family, and she sent me to go live with my grandmother. But unfortunately, because my grandmother was disabled and living in Section 8 housing, um, she could only take one of us. My brother had behavioral problems because of my mother's uh, drug use, and he un- he was put into foster care, and he was a couple of years younger than me, but I think because I was a girl, my grandmother was very concerned about my safety. And so the decision was made for me to go and live with my grandmother. And I vividly remember the day I was put on a bus and sent to live with my grandmother. I remember getting off the bus, it must've been 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And I remember my grandmother hugging me and making sure that I was okay. And, you know, she looked me in the face and said to me, you're fortunate enough to be born in a different America than the America I was born into. What are you going to do with this opportunity? But by that point I was 10 years old and I'm like, um, I don't know, <laughs> <I'm ten. laughs> but I don't know. I'm 10. But you know, in that moment, it made me really think about who I wanted to be. And I said, you know what? I want to be a lawyer. I said, I want to be a lawyer and I want to have lots of shoes. Um,
2: (laughs) (laughs) I want to be a fancy lawyer. (laughs) Yes.
1: It was random. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Shoes and lawyer. Um, And luckily, I have lots of shoes and I have been fortunate enough to live my dream of, you know, being a lawyer. But it hasn't been an easy journey for me. And I needed a lot of support. I like to tell the story that when I came to live with my grandmother, Um, She was living in Section 8 housing, which is government housing, and it was for senior citizens. So um, your grandchildren weren't supposed to come and live with you. They could come and stay with you for a week or two at a time, but other than that, was against the rules. And so all of the other ladies in the complex would pretend that I was their granddaughter if anybody asked. But what was funny about it is because it was California, it was very diverse. So literally one week I would have an Asian grandmother. So (laughs) I called myself Nikki Wong, which was my favorite. I'm pretty sure that wasn't even the woman's name. But, you know, when you're 10 years old. So I was Nikki Wong. I was Nikki Lopez. I was Nikki Garcia. And like these little old ladies dared, you know, like the landlord to say that I wasn't their grandfather. Right. They swore. Yes, Yes. You know. I was like, I'm Nikki Wong. And (laughs) she's like, doesn't she look just like me? Um, Probably not. But
2: that was quite
1: an adventure. It was. But, you know, it showed me the kindness of people because, you know, my grandmother maybe wouldn't have been able to keep her housing or she wouldn't have been able to keep me if people, you know, didn't bend the rules a little bit. And you know, it was, it was for my protection. And I think that, that really taught me an important lesson that it really does sort of take this larger community to raise a child and to help and that, you know, it's not necessarily the big things that you do for people, but it's the little things mm-hmm. that are done for people. And I have to say, growing up as a child and those experiences, it was very difficult for me. I, th- I think it took away my sense of stability. Mm-hmm. Um, but That love that people showed me, that caring that people showed me, that belief that maybe I could do something better with my life um, really grounded me and really made it possible for me to achieve later on. I think, you know, once I went to live with my grandmother, that gave me a much more normal sort of set of circumstances. You know, I was raised on welfare and food stamps and, you know, government cheese and, you know, I had to get my health care through the government. So it certainly wasn't palatial by any stretch of the imagination, but it was stability. And I think very much for me, that is why I've taken an activist role at this point in terms of being a spokesperson uh, about some of these issues that we're talking about now, because, you know, as a child, I had to depend on the social safety net as a way to help me to achieve my dreams. I certainly, you know, think I'm a smart person, think that I worked really hard and I was fortunate enough to have my grandmother. But given the set of circumstances that I was born into, I also needed, you know, resources mm-hmm. to be able to sort of to achieve my dreams. I needed, you know, student loans to be able to go to college and to graduate from law school. Right. And so, you know, it's a combination of those things that help to, you know, help people, mm-hmm. Um, find success in their lives And,
2: and and you ended up there just by circumstance certainly you know if you're a child you're not choosing that
1: no and you know I certainly and I think my mother at this point in her life would say that you know a lot of the circumstances that we ended up in were because of a lot of bad choices that she made but she still wanted good things for her children. I think she got to a place where she was really stuck and couldn't get out of her own way, and she was dealing with a lot of addictions. But, you know, I wasn't in poverty because of anything that I had done. And I think sort of we as a country have decided that we want to invest in our in our young people. And that's really the way I think of the social safety net is an investment.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, can I ask where are your mother and brother today?
1: Um, My mother is married. She actually married my stepdad, who she met as he was a volunteer at the soup kitchen at the San Diego rescue mission where we would get our meals. And she's actually been married for about 25 years. Um, So he helped her kick her drug addiction. But, you know, she dealt with alcohol, you know, for a very, very long time. But she's doing a, a lot better Um, I wish I could say that my brother's story ended well, but it didn't. He passed away in 2010. And that is very much another reason why I go out and advocate and talk about not just the social safety net, but really giving people opportunity like education. Because Mm -hmm. um, when I went to live with my grandmother, um, my brother went into foster care and we never lived together as a family again. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the time I graduated from high school um, at 18, my brother um, had already failed out of high school. And so when I came to Philadelphia to St. Joe's, uh, we lost contact and I didn't know where he was for almost 11 years. And in that time frame, I actually he found me on the Internet my last semester of law school. And, you know, on the surface, things had seemed okay. Um, turned out he was working on the set of the television show, Frasier. Catholic Charities had found him a job moving scenery there. And I, I went to visit him on the set of the show, which was in its last couple of episodes. Um, but unfortunately, when I got to California, um, he I found out that he was addicted to meth and had contracted HIV. Mm. And so, you know, the last few years of his life, as you can imagine, were very difficult because there was resentment because I'd gone to live with my grandmother and he perceived that as being a much better situation mm-hmm. than what he was in. And it it was, I mean, we didn't have a lot of money, but, you know, being with a family member who cared about you right. um, and not having to worry about your safety is certainly an advantage. Mm-hmm. And You know, it was very hard for our relationship. And, you know, I tried to get him to go back to college and I tried to get him to, you know, into rehab, but he just wasn't in that place. And, you know, it really put a wedge between us. And unfortunately, he took his life in 2010.
2: I'm so sorry. That's very difficult. Um, One of the questions I have for you when you mentioned going back, how wonderful that your mom would take you to the library during the day. And I'm assuming you were not in school at that time and how did you learn to read and and at that level
1: um i, I mean i'd been i think i was fortunate i was uh, had always been put into advanced classes so i mean i was in school up until the time that we were homeless and if we had some kind of stability she tried to make sure that you know i was going to school but i have to say there were definitely holes in my education that i even feel somehow now like you know i didn't necess- i don't necessarily even remember learning all the rules of grammar but you know i think i love to read i'm a voracious reader mm-hmm. and i think sort of with the practice of reading i just got better at it um and i had the ability to be able to comprehend on a very high level so even when i went to go live with my grandmother after being homeless on the streets they put me in the gifted program okay so you had
2: a natural you had the aptitude it was there
1: i had a natural aptitude and i think that it helped me to sort of deal with some of the holes in my education, but I can't say that I was completely untouched by it because Mm -hmm. when I went to, when I got a scholarship to come to Philadelphia, to St. Joe's, I actually failed out after my first year. And so, you know, it was a common, it's not that I don't believe that I got a good education because I did. I got, I, I think I had a very good, excellent public school education, but I have to say that, coming to Philadelphia, leaving my grandmother and being in a new environment with people who had not necessarily had some of the same experiences was very difficult for me. And I didn't know how to ask for help or the support that I needed. I think a lot of kids sort of have difficulties sort of finding their place when they go to college. Mm -hmm. But if you take into account that, you know, I'd suffered from homelessness and, you know, I, I came from a pretty impoverished background, you know it was hard i came to philadelphia i didn't have you know a warm winter coat and i just sort of wasn't prepared for what i was seeing it was a you know it was a smaller private um you know catholic school which i'd grown up catholic but you know some of my roommate was from the main line and I just had uh, some difficulty sort of feeling comfortable there, and I really didn't ask for the help and the support that I needed. And that's very much one of the things that I go when I speak, especially to inner city kids that are dealing with poverty. You know, one of the things that I really stress is asking for help that, you know, showing that you are having difficulty isn't a weakness, you know, the not asking for help and bettering yourself, that's where the weakness lies.
2: Exactly. And and I'm sure you, you were comparing yourself. You found yourself comparing yourself and then not, you know, losing that belief in yourself that you had.
1: I did. I really very much felt like I was a failure and that everyone could see it and that I didn't belong there. And it wasn't because of anything that anybody was doing or saying, but it sort of was the internal monologue that I had going on inside of my head. And, you know, I think it took me a long time to feel probably well into my 20s to really feel comfortable about the experiences that had happened um, to me in my life. I mean, if someone had told me that in my 30s that I would be traveling around the country sort of talking about policy and very much sharing my personal story of being homeless and growing up in poverty, I would have said, You were crazy because I just didn't feel comfortable with that. I, I felt like I spent a lot of my childhood trying to overcome that. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, it's just a progression in my growth of feeling comfortable. I think that it's sort of growing up and maturing, it's made me realize that those experiences didn't make me less. In some ways, they made me more of who I wanted to be.
2: Well, it so much speaks to determination and, and hard work. And that no matter what our circumstances, if you want something, you can achieve it. And I, I'm curious to know you. You talk about the the day you decided. You know, I want to be an attorney. Where do you think that came from? Especially at a young age, um, what did you know of um, it, about attorneys and lawyers and and law? I
1: honestly, I didn't know very much about attorneys. Any interaction that my family had had with the law was not right. It was on the other, right. It was the not, other side. on the other side. was it right. positive. Uh, you know, I I knew about criminal attorneys from watching it on tv and i used to love watching matlock and old perry mason episodes with okay. my with my grandmother so that literally was what i knew about law but i have to say that you know i turned on the tv one day and there was a the cosby show and there was claire huxtable this african-american woman lawyer who looked like me right. who was a lawyer and you want to know a funny story in 2008 i got a call from temple and said Hey, Bill Cosby's coming, and he had somebody who was going to be speaking with him who was really important. And the person couldn't speak, and they said, Would you like to come and participate? And I said, I'd love to. And so, you know, I was talking to a group of teachers, and he was there, and and we sort of were co hosting this town hall. And I said to him, I'm like, One of the reasons I'm a lawyer is because. Um, of the Cosby Show and watching Claire Huxtable. And he looked at me and he said, You're the real life Claire Huxtable now. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can die happy. Bill uh, Cosby said, I'm Claire <laughs> Huxtable.
2: I love that. Uh, we're actually going to take a quick break and we will be back with Nikki Johnson Houston.
3: It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks, and some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the mutual fund store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face to face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your mutual fund store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the mutual fund store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit mutualfundstore.com or call the Mutual fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330.
4: The Women's Professional Network of Villanova University sponsors and supports programming for all Villanova women in order to encourage professional growth and development. The purpose is to connect women from all five colleges to educate and ignite change. They are thrilled to have this organization to foster creative collaboration with women across all industries. For more information or to offer ideas and suggestions, please contact them at wpn at villanova.edu or visit their website at villanova.edu slash WPN. Go Nova!
5: Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest-growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at insourcenow.com to find the quality help you need.
2: Welcome back, everyone. We're in the studio today with Nikki Johnson-Houston, who is the owner of the law office of Nikki Johnson-Houston. And we're talking all about Nikki's story, her backstory, which was, Um, a a difficult one, and and what she was able to overcome um, to get to where she is today. Um, I'd like to go back and talk about how you received that scholarship to St. Joe's University. And at the time, you were in San Diego still?
1: I was. Okay. Um, I was going to Crawford High School. Um, You know, one of the things I'm so thankful for my grandmother about was she always pushed education, and once I went to live with her, there was never any question that I was gonna to go to college. We weren't sure how we were gonna pay for it, but that was always the expectation that was set for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so when my senior year came, you know, I had uh, very good grades and um, I actually went to a college fair. So they bring in all of these different colleges from around the country and you have access to them and they have access to you. And I came across um, St. Joseph's University and like I said, I grew up Catholic. I'm third generation Catholic. My grandmother went to mass almost every day, and so for me, uh, St. Joe's just really spoke to me. It was a it was a smaller environment, which I thought that I would do well in. Mm-hmm. It was in a big city. Um, it was on the East Coast, and I think for me, I wanted to go somewhere where I could have a fresh start, mm-hmm. where I wasn't, where I hadn't just been this girl who'd been homeless that I could come somewhere as an adult and sort of make my own way in the world. That was very, um, that was very important to me. Um, and my grandmother liked that. It had, you know, Catholic values, and right. she felt that— She thought I, you'd
2: be safe and in the right place.
1: Yeah, so it sort of met um, all of our needs. And, you know, St. Joe's was great. They gave me a good amount of scholarship money and um, grants— But one of the difficulties were were we weren't really prepared for, you know, the additional costs that go along with, you know, going to school across the country. So, you know, books and just having winter clothes and those things that I didn't necessarily need growing up in, you know, San Diego with 300 days of sunshine. Right. Um, And so even though our family contribution was fairly small. I mean, when I look at it, maybe it was a couple thousand dollars a year, maybe not even that much. My grandmother would sometimes be late making um, those payments. And so, you know, one of the things I remember is going up to the cafeteria line and sometimes my card not working Mm -hmm. and just being mortified because that really sort of that loop in my head of saying that I wasn't good enough. I felt like everyone was staring at me and I'd have to go to the financial aid office and you know, try to deal with that so that, you know, I can make sure that I could still go to class. And again, I think part of it was we just weren't really educated about the process. We spent a lot of time trying to make sure, you know, that I went to college, but we weren't aware of sort of all of the issues that go along with it. And so that's why it was very important for me once I was out practicing that I started a, a mentoring program for kids from the inner city who wanted to go to law school. And one of the things that was important is. We put on a a panel every year for high school students about how to become a lawyer and talk about all of these issues, about financial aid, about scholarships, um, so that it's not just getting someone to college, but getting them through college.
2: Right, right.
1: Um, After, you know, I had difficulties. I wasn't making the right choices. I wasn't going to class the way that I should have. I was very sort of overwhelmed. So after my first semester, I was put on academic probation. And I think they were hoping that what that was going to do for me is that I was going to really realize that I was in some trouble and I was going to, you know, really pick it up and get into high gear. And sort of the opposite happened. I almost got frozen in fear. And, you know, I see that a lot with people is that, you know, that you're not making the best choices, but you don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And it's not just young people. It's older people. It's a lot with women that sometimes you just feel powerless, right. And so that's really sort of where i I was. And again, I didn't, you know, I didn't ask for help. And I think where some of that came from is the way I grew up is I was taught that what happened in your house stayed in your house. and part of it was because if you told people what was going on on the outside, you know, the fear was that I would be taken away or put into foster care. And so those bad habits that I learned, really did follow me into adulthood.
2: Pretending everything is, is okay.
1: Pretending everything's okay. And a lot of people do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had very specific reasons why I did it, but it doesn't really matter what your reasons are. But it doesn't help move you forward. And so after that first year, you know, I, I was uh, academically dismissed and... You know, I got a job as a live in nanny on the main line. And actually, for me, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me, because once I left college, I really realized that it was a place that I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And for me to get to where I wanted to be and have the opportunities in life that I needed to get educated. And so, you know, I answered uh, an ad on the main line times. The first family that I was with didn't it didn't work out. You know, I wouldn't say anything disparaging about it, but, you know, it just wasn't the right situation for me. And, you know, they basically kicked me out and I was fortunate enough to have met someone who helped me and put me in a hotel and helped me find a job with the the family who I've talked a lot about. Um, in public who were a family of lawyers The father was a law professor at Villanova And their mother was the head of the ACLU in Pennsylvania So it ended up being the perfect place that for me That was meant to be It was meant to be for yes. someone who wanted to be a lawyer And, you know, they were fantastic They took me in and basically made me um, their own I worked for them, you know, about seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning till about 6 o'clock at night and, you know, they convinced me to go back to school. And, you know, I have to say St. Joe's really stepped up and was so kind and gracious to me. And they sent me an application to go to their um, university college, which is their night school program. Okay. So I did lose my scholarship and I did have to start all over again. But they gave me a second chance. Mm-hmm. And so um, the burshoffs made sure that I was, that they were home every single night by six o'clock. And I can tell you as a lawyer, that is such, that's such a hardship to commit. And very many, there's not very many people who would make sure that they were home every night so that their nanny could go to college. Right. <laughs> that's wonderful. But they, but they did. And. You know, that was 19 years ago, which not to date myself. Um, and I was 19 years old then. And they have been in my life ever since. I mean, Ben was three years old um when I came and was it
2: just the one child? It was the
1: one child. Okay. Um, I couldn't even cook. I mean, it was terrible. I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to make macaroni and cheese. Like I made it with water instead of <laughs> milk. And you know what? We just muddled through. Right. But you know, I worked for them for a couple of years, and they were just fantastic um, people. And again, it's an example of people helping me in my life. But one of the important lessons I learned is asking for help, but also being in a place where you can accept the help that people are giving you. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we're just not in a place. We don't want to admit that we need help. And sometimes we won't accept the help.
2: Right. Right. You know, so they were clearly mentors for you in your
1: life. Absolutely. And they and they continue to be. And Deborah worries about me like a mother hen still making sure that I'm okay. But, you know, I got to pick them as my family. You don't necessarily get to pick the family that you were born into, but I got to pick them as my family. And, you know, they were very important to me, especially my grandmother died when I was a junior um, at St. Joe's. And so that was a very difficult time as you can Mm -hmm. imagine, because she was with me my entire life. And, you know, for the first time, even when I'd been homeless, I knew my grandmother was out there. And for the first time, I felt almost like an orphan because that was the person who loved me unconditionally, no matter what I did. Right. And so I and was family. very... family. That yes. was your,
2: real, you know, your family. And I was
1: really lost um, without her. And mm-hmm. so the burst offs really continue to play this very important role in my life. And, you know, when Ben graduated from college, this... Um, Past Spring, you know, I was there with his parents cheering him on because, you know, he's like my little brother. Right. And now he's interning with my husband. So it really is sort of a full circle And that's moment. family. That's and, family. And, and that's family. And, you know, they were also a Jewish family. So we came from different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of that relationship, I was one of the um, co-founding members along with the AJC of an African-American Jewish woman dialogue group. And we meet every few weeks and we really just connect as women uh, really about what we have in common. Mm -hmm. And it really is just to sort of reconnect these two communities because the Jewish community absolutely played a huge role um, in the civil rights movement. And we just really wanted to reconnect those two communities and as people. Right.
2: So let's talk about the years at Temple and and law school and yes. and how you came to decide the the uh, branch of law that you wanted to study. How did that come about?
1: Well, going to Temple Law School really was a dream for me. I I re- literally remember, you know, walking in the first day and just it was a full circle moment. It was my childhood dream come true that, you know, in some moments really seemed impossible for me not you know not just even you know being homeless but literally after failing out of college you don't necessarily think that you're going to you know go to law school but you know temple you know took a chance on me and I, I think to them my background you know brought something extra you know, and that was diversity in their way beyond me being an African-American woman, but just my experiences. And it really became a, a family for me. Um, it's one of the best things that I've ever done. It's one of the toughest things that I've ever done. You know, what they say about law school, you know, they tear you down they build you up and they really teach you sort of how to write and how to speak and how to analyze. And for me, um, they, they did that. And you know, it's really sort of where I came into feeling good about myself and really thinking about what kind of impact I wanted to make in the world at the law school really made me feel like I could be someone powerful. And I don't mean about like power and money, but that they gave me a confidence in who I was and that all the experiences that I had in the world mattered. And that's what I mean by sort of, the power that each of us has inside to do something great. Mm -hmm. Um, And really, for me, they not only gave me an opportunity to become a lawyer, but uh, they gave me an opportunity to get a a couple of other degrees. So um, at the beginning of my second semester, um, there was a program about doing your JD, MBA at the same time, and they said that if you could get a high enough score GMAT That you would get into the program and basically your law school tuition would pay for your MBA and I'd always been interested in business. I was a business management major undergrad at St. Joe's. And so I applied to the program and I got in. And then, you know, I started taking some other classes and I really found that I had an affinity for tax. I really liked it. Um, which is sort of unusual. Um, people thought <laughs> I was a little taxes. Yeah, yeah. People thought I was a little crazy that I <laughs> I love taxes. Um, and then I decided that based on the way the program was going, that I would have finished in the middle of the year. And I thought, well, you know what? That's probably not the best job market to 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 be in. And so I asked if I could get an LLM, which is a Master's of Law in taxation. And so um, I think they were a little surprised, and there were lots of meetings um, because, you know, I wasn't like a straight-A student, and, you know, their real concern was they wanted to make sure that I completed my law degree because that's what I was there for. Um, but they showed a lot of faith in me, gave me a lot of support, and they allowed me to graduate with my JD, my MBA, and my LLM in tax in four in years. four years, right. And, you know, separately, it probably would have taken about six or seven years to earn those degrees. And so part of it was, you know, I went to school every summer. Um, You know, my advisors really worked with me to make sure that I had the right amount of credits. And, you know, it really took a village to make sure that that happened for me. But they absolutely, uh, they absolutely did. And it it was a wonderful experience. I probably will never
2: go back to school ever again. You've had enough. (laughs) I've had enough. (laughs) Plenty of school. You know, I see it. a common theme throughout this story is that um, people believing in you. Yes. And that's something that probably you didn't see in the beginning, but people saw that in you. They saw that you had potential to do something, um, and then they wanted to help you with that. They, You know what? They did. People believed in me when I didn't even believe in
1: myself, and mm-hmm. I'm so incredibly humbled by that. And, you know, people didn't give me, you know, second chances. People gave me third and fourth chances Um, because as you can imagine, I I had some issues because of the things that had happened to me. And in some ways, it made me very mature. And in some ways, it made me very immature. And, you know, I admit that in some ways I was entitled. And I know people sort of think that sounds strange as somebody who grew up the way that I did. But, you know, I sometimes had a chip on my shoulder because of all of the things that had happened to me. And I felt like, you know, why is this happening to me? I'm trying to be a decent person. I'll do whatever it takes to get to where I want. But as I grew up, what I realized is that, you know, the only thing I was entitled to is an opportunity. That's all anybody in this world is entitled to. And you know what? I ended up getting more than my share of opportunities because I blew some of the opportunities that I got. But I think sort of had to look myself in the mirror and say, what kind of person do I want to be? And to forgive myself for some of the mistakes and the boneheaded decisions that I'd made. And that's a huge, I think a huge value is that we have to get out of our own way, but we have to forgive ourselves and to say, going forward, what kind of person do I want to be? What kind of woman do I want to be? And that very much goes back to the values that I was raised with by my grandmother, because my grandmother used to tell me that there was no shame in being poor, but being poor of character and that, you know, I wasn't going to be judged by my own success, but by the success that I helped other people to find. And I think for me, where I found my real happiness wasn't in, you know, just trying to find my own success,
2: but really realizing that it was about helping others. Right, right. You know, that's exactly it. Because when you allow yourself to, to believe in your abilities, that's going to allow you to help other people. And that's what I think sometimes pushes people over that, you know, um, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, the, the thing that's holding them back is not believing in themselves. Absolutely. When you, when you know that if you come to that, it'll be allowing you to help other people. That's a good motivation. So we're going to take one last quick break and we'll be back with Nikki Johnson-Houston. The Women's
4: Professional Network of Villanova University sponsors and supports programming for all Villanova women in order to encourage professional growth and development. The purpose is to connect women from all five colleges to educate and ignite change. They are thrilled to have this organization to foster creative collaboration with women across all industries. For more information or to offer ideas and suggestions, please contact them at wpn at villanova.edu or visit their website at villanova.edu slash WPN. Go Nova!
5: Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest-growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest-growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at insourcenow.com to find the quality help you need.
3: It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330.
2: Welcome back, everyone. We're in the studio today with Nikki Johnson Houston, who is the owner of the law office of Nikki Johnson Houston. And um, we've been talking all about Nikki's background, and I'd love to talk about some of the organizations and the advocacy work that that she's doing that's so wonderful um, here in Philadelphia. So let's start with, um, I know that you're involved with Project Home. And uh, tell me how you came to be involved with that. Um,
1: I was... uh I was featured in an article uh, from the Huffington Post, and they reached out to me and said, "You know, we thought your story was really great. This is the organization that um, provides long-term housing for you know homeless people, especially women and children. You know, would you be interested in working with us?" Well. Absolutely given, especially given my own personal background, because they're able to keep families together in a way that I wasn't able to stay with my mother and my brother. And so that absolutely spoke to me and to my values. And everybody knows Sister Mary Scullion, who is amazing and a force. Of nature and you know it really isn't about solving people's short-term problems they're really looking at the long-term problems of ending generational poverty so that people can really take care of themselves so you know it's providing you know scholarships to those kids so that they can go to college and find their place in the world the way that I was um, able to Um, in addition to working with Project Home I'm also on the Board of Governors of the Philadelphia Bar Association, and through my work with the Bar Association, um, I'd been co-chair of the Women in the Profession Committee, and prior to that, I was um, co-chair of the Women in the Profession Public Service Task Force, and through my job there, we started a mentoring program for inner-city kids who were interested in going to law school. We participate in Temple Law School's mock trial competition. So we talk to them about the best way to present themselves. You know, most importantly, probably my real baby besides the mentoring program was how to become a lawyer from high school to law school, you know, which there's a panel every single year and it literally is the nuts and bolts of everything that a high school student would need to know to be successful, to not just get into college and law school, but to pay for it and to have a successful career um, after they get out of school. So what I was looking to do is to provide the help and support that I was lacking in one place that people could go. Because, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, talking about my own personal story, which is a little bit embarrassing to me. And like I said earlier, if someone said a few years ago that this is what I would be doing, I would be sort of shocked by it. But I think what I've understood is that my story isn't really about me. It represents millions of people who've had this kind of struggle and that I've been fortunate enough and I'm humbled by the fact that I get to say, this is what this experience meant to me. And just because I was poor didn't mean that I didn't have dreams or that I didn't have talent. And that we need to start looking, especially at our poor young people, as a great resource to our country and that we are missing out if we are not educating them. Mm -hmm. It isn't just that These people aren't living their dreams. It's also making us less competitive as a country. And so to me, you know, it isn't about me. It's about the larger community. And if somebody hears the story and they reimagine what they can do with their life,
2: then it's worthwhile. Right. What are some of the things that you say to these kids when you're in front of them that, you know, you really feel is a powerful message and maybe we will sit with them?
1: I mean, one of the things I do is I try to be really truthful with them and I try to really talk to them about the difficulties that I went through. I mean, the truth is, is that they were born into very, very difficult circumstances. And what I try to let them understand is that even though they may have been born to parents that have drug problems or are unable to take care of them, or maybe in prison or whatever the multitude of problems that they may have, it does not mean that they are not capable of achieving something great in life and that there's something to be said for the fact that they survived and that if you can survive that college is a snap. And so for me, it's about empowering them that, What they have what they have inside is enough for them to succeed, Um, but also saying to them, you're going to have to work really hard, harder than maybe some of the people that you go to school with. And it's not fair. But the truth is, is what it takes to be successful. There are certain steps that you have to take and it doesn't matter where you come from. You have to take the steps. Mm -hmm. Um, But it may make your circum, Your circumstances may make it more hard difficult for you to achieve your dreams, but it's not impossible. And, you know, I talk to them about why it's important for them to get educated because I think a lot of adults say, go to college, but don't really talk to kids about why it's important. Mm -hmm. You know, education meant freedom for me. Education meant opportunities for me. Education means that I can work for myself and make a good living and that I'm in charge of my life. And I think that really resonates with them because when you're so poor, you feel like things happen to you. It makes you feel powerless. Right. And education made me feel powerful because it allowed me to be who I wanted to be.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Talk a little bit about the Eisenhower Fellowship that you're involved in.
1: Okay. So uh, last year I was um, honored to be named an Eisenhower fellowship. It's um, a national and international fellowship. They send eight to 10 USA fellows around the world. And basically you apply to the program and you let them know um, an area that you're interested in studying. I applied to the program and I was interested in going to India to study generational poverty. And I know initially people were sort of surprised. They're like, You're this African American woman. What would make you choose India? Well, I was interested in India because it's, you know, one of the fastest growing economies. But even though they have this they have this growing middle class, there's six hundred million people who are living in abject poverty. And so I really wanted to look at if some of the programs that we have in the United States would work there and really how do you move people on that scale? How do you move them out of generational poverty? Because I was—I grew up poor, my mother grew up poor, my grandmother grew up poor, and poverty seems to work like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's generation after generation. And I think for me, going to India by myself was, I grew a lot, but also I think I really realized what a global problem poverty is and that, it doesn't matter whether the people look like you or not. It doesn't matter if people are from your same country. If children are suffering, then it matters to all of us. And, you know, it really resonated. I wasn't sure of how they would accept me because many people I met had never seen an African-American woman in person before. Um, but we had a lot of the same goals. And, you know, a lot of people brought their children to hear me speak because, Um, They weren't used to someone who'd grown up in those circumstances really talking about it in a public manner because um, they tend to keep things very personal. Um, So they don't people don't necessarily just sort of share all of their personal stories. But, you know, one of the things is I remember going to a night school for children. So, you know, I was I worked my way through college at like 19 years old. Well, these kids were nine years old, and they worked all day to help yeah. support their families, and then they would go to school at night. And so, you know, I show up. There's a huge banner with this picture that they got of me and my cap and gown, and they were so excited to see me. And the kids kept saying to me, were you really homeless? Were you really poor
2: like me? Well, I think they think if you grow up in America, period, that, that you wouldn't have that circumstance. Absol- Absolutely,
1: but you know, they were like, but you were able to make it. Do you think we can too? And I said, absolutely, you can make it. And most importantly, they wanted to know was I accepted by the general society would, you know, did people treat me like I was less because of how I grew up? And I said, you know what? No, I said, people are actually interested in hearing what I have to say and what that experience has meant to me. And maybe, what that experience is like for millions of other people. Right. And so for me, it really was uh, a revelation because there's really, there's not American values or Indian values. There's human values Mm -hmm. and everybody wants to have a better life. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it really was amazing. I, you know, I think you'd have to go and take multiple trips to be able to sort of solve these problems. But you know, I did everything from, you know, go to a leprosy colony to speak at, you know, some of the top law schools and business schools. And when I was talking to the more affluent, you know, I really talked to those young people about the obligation that they had to use their skills and talents to make the world a better place. Because I'm a capitalist, you know, I, you know, I'm happy to make money, but I also do I believe I do good in my community. And I think you can do both of those things. Right. Well, and
2: one allows the other.
1: One allows the other. Yes. You know, some of the most generous people I know are some of the wealthiest people. So I, I don't think that there's any difficulties with somebody being wealthy and in, in doing good. Right. But I do think that we have, you know, when you have a certain level of education, when you have a certain level of skill, I do believe that there's this obligation to try to use it to make the world better beyond just the profit margin. And I think it actually makes good business sense. And right. so I spent a lot of time talking about the capitalist business case for why we need to invest in people, because it's true for India, but it's also true for the United States. You know, if you have a shrinking middle class, who's going to buy your products? You know, the larger the middle class, the larger our tax base. I'm a tax lawyer. You know, I want more people who have businesses in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. You know, I want them to do well because that means my business is going to do well. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's a worthwhile investment and we can't be competitive as a country when we have 50 million people who are living in hunger, who need food stamps, because that means that somehow our system is broken. Right. Right.
2: Well, you know, for the listeners, we should probably talk a little bit about your practice and and the services that you offer and how, how you might be able to help them.
1: Yes. So my law office is the law office of Nikki Johnson Houston, but my website is com. So I decided if you're going to practice tax, you have to make it a little bit fun.
2: (laughs) Well, you are the diva. I I wish people could see how fabulous you look here this morning. Thank you.
1: (laughs) So Philly Tax Diva really comes from, I spent six and a half years um, representing the city of Philadelphia in um, major tax cases. So basically a lot of businesses um, I would represent the city um, in those con- basically in those tax controversies. And now, what I've done is started my own practice, and now I represent businesses who are being audited um, with the city. And, you know, in some ways, it's not that different of a job i always felt that you know when i worked for the city that i was a, a public servant and that my obligation was to the taxpayers and i think that's sort of interesting that when you're sort of advocating on behalf of the city the people that you're advocating against are also your bosses for cuz they're your ta- the taxpayers right so i very much you know treated it as everybody was entitled to respect and you know, I tried to be as fair as I possibly could be, and I think that's really served me now that I've gone out on my own because many people that I dealt with on the other sides that were attorneys or CPAs, they now recommend clients to me because of the level of expertise that I had, but also that I would be that I always treated everyone fairly and was very professional, and I have a very niche practice. So I really focus on people who have Philadelphia City business tax issues because that really is... Um, it really does have a life of its own and is very specific. And most people don't have that level of expertise.
2: Exactly. It's complicated and they need someone to explain it to them.
1: Absolutely. Um, We
2: just have a few minutes left. And I'd love for you to just um, leave the listeners with one last uh, bit of advice as far as, you know, not letting their circumstance in life hold them back from what their purpose is. What would you say?
1: I mean, I I think one of the most important lessons that I've learned is the answer to every question that you have in life really is that you're good enough because I think that's what people search for. I think that's why people search for money and prestige and power because all of us want to feel like we're heard, like we're respected and like we're important. Mm-hmm. And you already are those things. Um, Searching outside of yourself for those things isn't really isn't really going to be where you find it. You really have to sort of make that peace with yourself. And, you know, the thing that I ask myself every day is I set values. You know, I set goals for myself and, you know, I look myself in the mirror and I say, did you do what you wanted to do today? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And then I try, you know, to do a little better the next day. But I think for me um, that there is power in the individual and no, I'm not going to solve hunger or poverty, but I want it to be a part of the conversation Mm -hmm. and that everything that's happened to me, I don't know why they happened, why it happened to me. And I couldn't, you know, I didn't have any control of those things happening to me, but I did have control over how I decided to deal with those things. And I decided to turn them not only into a personal lesson for me, but maybe something that could be useful to other people. And, you know, I went into doing advocacy with the idea that I wasn't going to change the world, but if I changed one person's life, then that was enough for me because maybe that person would change the world.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, we hear that all the time. It's so true. None of us singly can make a difference on a worldwide scale. But I read something yesterday that I thought was wonderful. It said that every day is a new day with no mistakes. I like that. (laughs) Right? Isn't that great? So it's really one more opportunity to try to do better again. So anyway, I'm so happy that you came in and shared your story with us, Nikki. I I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. And uh, I wish you the best of luck with your new practice. I'm sure you're going to be fine. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco. And if you have any questions for me or any of my guests, feel free to call me at 215-313-5561. Have a great week.